you actually came up with a happiness equation. Can you share yeah. that equation with us and explain it to us a little bit? Yes, so happiness is much more predictable than we think. It follows an equation. The equation is your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be. So it's events minus expectations all the time. Now, you know, uh, the way I came up with the equation literally was like a scientist. I wrote down 92 data points of moments in my life where I felt happy and I tried to find what was common between them. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. Hey, everyone. Nick Ninton here for a new episode of Now to Next with Nick Nanton. I feel like someone who would be practicing their sibilance for their reading lines as an actor would probably say a line like that uh, to get their consonants right. But uh, excited to have you back. Uh, of course, if you like the show, please, whatever platform you're on, like it, subscribe it, share it, tell all your friends, make your kids listen, whatever it is. Uh, I've got a great guest for you today. I've got Mo Gaudet. Uh, he's got a new book out today in America called Scary Smart. It's coming out all across the globe. I'm going to give you a brief bio of Mo, and then uh, we'll get into talking about life, his new book, AI, what's what we should be afraid of, maybe what we shouldn't be afraid of, and uh, and I can't wait to start. But because they can already see you, Mo, I might as well just say hello. How are you today? Hey, Nick, how are you? Yeah, why can't they man. see me? Why can't they see me? I was just scratching my nose. Yes, no. <laughs> All good. Uh, so let me give you guys a brief bio. Uh, Mo Gaudat is the former chief business officer for Google X, a serial entrepreneur and author of the books Solve for Happy and the new book, if I didn't already mention, you can get it today, Scary Smart. After a 30-year career in tech, Mo has made happiness his primary topic of research, diving into literature and discussing the topic of happiness with some of the wisest people in the world. He poured his findings into his first book, Solve for Happy, which he was inspired to write after the tragic death of his son, Ali, in 2014. Throughout his career, Mo has remained a serial entrepreneur who has co-founded more than 20 businesses, as well as serving as a board member and mentor to various companies and startups. He founded the organization One Billion Happy in honor of his son as a moonshot goal to help one billion people become happier. His latest book, Scary Smart, looks at the future of artificial intelligence and explains how to fix the current trajectory now, offering a blueprint for how we can take action to safeguard ourselves. Um, Mo, of course, again, welcome to the show. I want to get all into AI, but I think it's really important to talk at least for a few minutes about your journey that led you to, led you to here. So, so we earn the right for people to know that you are the expert that you are. Tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up Mo and maybe a bit about your career. Uh, thank, thank you for having me so much, Nick. I, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to, to, you know, tell you a little bit about me. I lived two full lives. I, uh, I was born and raised in Egypt. Uh, public school, public university in Egypt. So if you want from a credibility point of view, I'm uneducated, uh, but uh, still I managed to somehow go on in life uh, to places I really never imagined. So I worked at IBM, Microsoft and Google at the time where those companies truly were changing the world. Uh, at Google for the, you know, the 12 years I spent there, I first was the vice president of emerging markets. 
uh, spent seven years opening uh, close to half of Google's operations globally, uh, not just hiring salespeople really, but building the product and the language understanding and the internet infrastructure and so on. And then uh, I moved to Google X. I was chief business officer of Google X for five years, an integral part of the uh, design and execution of what is known as the Moonshot uh, Factory. Uh, X, uh, if for those who don't know, is the innovation arm of Google, if you want. Uh, a lot of the AI and robotics projects uh, were uh, were centered at X, and probably the flagship uh, project was Waymo, the self-driving car, which is an incredible example of an artificial intelligence that has agency in the world. That was uh, half of my life. By 2014, as you mentioned, due to a medical error, really, I lost my wonderful son. Ali was 21 and a half at the time. He was truly my happiness mentor and coach, if you want. I had researched happiness for 12 years of my life as an engineer because I really couldn't get it any other way. I didn't understand all of the other language, that uh, mystic language, if you want, that it was written in. And eventually uh, ended up when Ali left uh, our world writing Soul for Happy. Soul for Happy was translated into 31 languages. Uh, became an international bestseller almost everywhere it launched. And uh, the idea of Soul for Happy was really talking to our logic about happiness before we reach the heart, if you want, which is not the usual way of doing it, but it really registered very well with the modern world. It was the backbone of this mission, One Billion Happy, and One Billion Happy was an attempt to just spread a message of happiness and perhaps a tiny bit of my son's essence, uh, uh, you know, across the world. Uh, and Scary Smart is not any different, even though Scary Smart, the first five chapters are clearly about uh, AI and how AI can be threatening to humanity. Uh, the second five chapters are mostly about humanity itself and how humanity should be in the age of the rise of the machines. That's great. Uh, one of the things that, well, first of all, uh, I went to Google X with Peter Diamandis maybe four mm -hmm. or five years ago. So you were probably there when I was there. We, of course, met with Astro Teller and all the other people. And I, I, you know, amazing things coming out of there. What a great place in many ways to to expand your mind with, you know, I mean, limitless boundaries in a way and, and resources that could, I would imagine, help you achieve anything that seemed doable. What I think is really interesting about your backstory is one of the things I caught that I read about you was that um, you were making lots of money. You did lots of cool stuff with Google. Uh, you know, what most people who, I, I loved one of the lines that I read that you had said is basically, if you don't have enough to meet your means, then every dollar does contribute to happiness, like to get you to a level of means. But I, I noticed something that I think, obviously you put it in there because you knew it would wake other people up to what you were experiencing. You know, in, in 2001, you had, you know, a wonderful wife, two amazing children, a handsome salary, two company cars, a villa with a pool. And this statement, you even bought two Rolls Royces online on a whim. Like that would make people realize like, oh, okay, this is like money is not an object, which I, I love like because we would most who have never experienced that level of luxury and wealth would think that would equal happiness. You have, you have everything you want. And I love how you know that that's not true. And so you, you talk about how nothing material would solve your happiness problem. And I think that this is a, this is the edge of a cliff. Most mm. people have never thought through. They have mm. always thought, you know, I have a mentor named Dan Sullivan. Dan says, if you have a problem money can solve, you don't really have a problem. 
because money is a resource you could find. And But if you have a problem money can't solve now, this is something we should talk about. And so money could not solve your happiness problem. Walk me a little bit through, and I think for hopefully people on the line here who either have experienced that or undoubtedly will experience that at some point in their lives, what what do you do next? When you figure out, like when you hit that wall, you go, oh, wait a second, what do you do next? You know, Nick, the, the interesting thing is that you don't have to buy two Rolls Royces online to, to know that, right? Every single one of us, uh, you know, you, you sort of go to school and then you graduate and you go like, okay, if I make $2,000 a month, this is it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fine. That's all I need, right? You make 2000 you say, ah, I meant two and a half. I meant two and a half, $500 more and I'll be fine, right? And then you go into, you, your needs keep changing. It seems like the goalposts are always moving. And the truth is, None of that stuff ever makes us happy for anything more than a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. You get promoted and the next day you go like, when is my next promotion? You know, you 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 find that wonderful, beautiful, handsome, tall or beautiful, you know, a, a, a spiritual or whatever partner. And then that partner makes you miserable. You know, the, the, the reality is when we really happiness is not found outside us. The, the challenge we have in our world is that we fail to observe that when we were kids, infants, I mean, if you really don't believe me, go and do a research on YouTube, spend like 40 minutes or something watching kids' videos, kids are happy. They don't need an Xbox to be happy. They don't need anyone to like their butt shot on Instagram to be happy. They basically are happy, right? They, 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 that's the truth, huh? You give them their basic needs for survival, huh? You give them love, food, you know, water, uh, um, uh, warmth, whatever, the basic needs for survival. And what does the child do? It plays with its toes and, and giggles, okay? You, yep. you, you were like that too. And, and you may fall out of happiness, you know, if the diaper gets wet, you fall out of happiness, remove the wet diaper and you go back to happiness. This is our default state. And yet we keep looking for it outside us. And my research, basically the biggest breakthrough, the first breakthrough, if you want, was when I realized that, when I realized that I had all the money in the world, I could buy anything, anytime I want. I mean, I'm not like that rich, but, and I'm not anymore, by the way, we should correct that story. So now I wear $4 t-shirts. Okay, and I give most of my money away and be, believe it or not, it's the most joyful thing you can ever do. Now, when yep. you when you realize that you start to tell yourself, I can throw money at my unhappiness problem and it's not going away. What can I do? And the truth is, the only thing you can do to achieve happiness is to stop being unhappy, which is it sounds really, really, really primitive when you say that. But this, it's the truth. Happiness is the absence of unhappiness. If you remove the reasons for your unhappiness, what's left behind is happy, okay? And and doing that is actually not that complicated. You have to just switch your mind from chasing and grasping hmm, to actually looking at what's wrong and removing it. And if you can remove what's wrong, hmm, what's, what's annoying you, what's, you know, draining you, what's stressing you, what's working against you, what, you know, what traumas you may have been working through and your lack of self-love or whatever, if you remove those, what's left behind is happy. All the things outside you will never bring you happiness. Yeah, you came up with an equation. I, I find it fascinating that you sort of cerebrally said, I don't understand happiness. I'm going to engineer it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to figure this problem out. And you actually came up with a happiness equation. Can you share yeah. that equation with us and explain it to us a little bit? Yes. So happiness is much more predictable than we think. It follows an equation. The equation is your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference 
between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be. So it's events minus expectations all the time. Now, you know, uh, the way I came up with the equation literally was like a scientist. I wrote down 92 data points of moments in my life where I felt happy and I tried to find what, what, what was common between them. And what is common is that happiness is not triggered by any specific event or series of events. No event has any inherent value of happiness in it. Rain can make you happy if you wanna water your plants and it can make you unhappy if you wanna sit in the sun, right? Rain itself has no inherent value of happiness. And so basically uh, your happiness or unhappiness is the result of two parameters. Uh, you you look at the event and it's not always what you see, it's what you perceive. And then you compare that to the other parameters, how, which is how do I want life to be? Okay? When, when, when rain meets your expectations, you're happy. When rain misses your expectations, you're unhappy. And that basically means that you have a lot of, uh, uh, you're in charge basically. You because in all honesty, most of the time, the events that make us are uh, unhappy are just a filtered, modified, slightly uh, uh, blurry view of events, not the actual event. Maybe maybe they're highly exaggerated by, you know, in, in negativity by the media, or they are, uh, you know, a little bit affected by your memories or uh, or emotions and so on. They're not really the event. Your, your partner might say, say something harmful, uh, hurtful on Friday, uh, but the thought in your head is he or she doesn't love me anymore. That's not the event at all, okay? That's your perception of the event. Uh, the other side of it is expectations, right? And expectations are entirely up to us. We set our own expectations. And, you know, the example I always give about this is you go to Northern Europe, Scandinavian countries where, uh, you know, the quality of life is the highest everywhere, anywhere in the world. They call it subjective well-being. And yet you have some of the highest suicide rates in the world because along with the improved quality of life, what happens is your expectations continue to inflate like a brat. OK, it's almost like you have a surface level agreement with life, uh, you know, that you're going to have ninety nine point nine 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 percent happy time availability. Right. If anyone has that agreement, they should show it to us. But the truth is life doesn't work that way. And so when your expectations are high, even the slightest miss of life makes you unhappy. Yes. Yeah, one of the cruelest things in life is is moments being built up. Um I'd say unfairly. It's it's interesting to think through. Like, um, I think one of the reasons why so many people are uh, there's this whole bridezilla phenomenon. I'm sure there's groomzillas too, right? At uh, at weddings, but mm. like, you know, you you get this, and and I'm guilty of it. Like, my wedding was an important day in my life. Yet we were sort of we were sort of conditioned to focus on the wrong things. Like we, we knew we were going to get married. My wife and I've been married 19 years now, happily, thankfully. Um, she hasn't made me miserable. So that's good. I probably made her miserable by the way. Um, <laughs> but you know, we knew we were going to get married. So that became the foregone conclusion, right? Okay. We're getting married. We're engaged. So now let's focus on all this other stuff of which hotel to have that, what kind of beef is going to be on the plate. Oh, do the chairs need covering? Do they not need covering? And then you really realize like her dad <laughs> made us a pretty good offer. Like, Hey, I'll just give you the money if you want to elope. Right. And we both were like, you're insane. By the way, we got married when I was 22 and she was 23. And so yeah. at the time we're just sort of, I was just starting law school. She had just graduated college. We had more friends than you know, any other time in our life, because it's just that time when you're just constantly hanging out with a million people and classes and parties. And, and, you know, so we had 300 people at our wedding, spent a fortune and didn't really get to enjoy it. Right. Because it was, it was a day that we had to be 
run around like, you know, sort of like, a, I guess, at a press junket almost, right? Like the day was not really for us. And, you know, had my perception and my expectation been, you know what, the wedding is, uh, is a is an experience for you and your wife to get married. But, but the wedding is really for the family to celebrate and for you to put it on for them. Yeah. That, I would have had a much better experience. And I mean, I enjoyed my wedding, but it's, it's so interesting how, how many things in life, no one really stops to break them down for us. Absolutely. And our perceptions are off case. But, but you, you know, what would be even more eye opening, you know, you have, you're surrounded by 300 people that love you. You're marrying the woman that you love. You're, you know, you're, everything is going well and, uh, you know, the, the, the drinks are missing two ice cubes in them. And what do we look at? We go like, why are they missing two ice cubes? We just have those filters in our heads. You know, my wedding, on the other hand, was my wonderful, wonderful ex-wife was my still my best friend. We were married 28 years. It was basically we went out to our best 30 friends and said, let's book a restaurant somewhere. You guys are paying. Okay, and lit and literally we went out with our all of our friends. She was wearing white and I was wearing, a, a, you know, a, a nice little suit and we had the best time ever and then used the money to travel on a honeymoon that was amazing and unforgettable and, you know, buy you know upgrade her car a little bit. And life was wonderful. And and when you really think about it, that's actually a great example. Most of the time we create our own unhappiness, even though the real core event is we're falling in love. We create the whole unhappiness because the wedding has to be perfect. What defines perfect? What defines perfect is that two people are falling in love. That's that is in itself perfect. If we can see it that way. I, I totally agree. And I think the really like the, uh, the perception issue is really interesting. Cause I will say that there have been, I think we all do this and, and no one, you know, certainly look at, uh, at 22, I, I, I think I had a pretty good perspective on a lot of things, but you know, look at, didn't have the life experience, even though I had more life experiences, I'd run businesses in college. I, you know, I'd done things, but you just don't have enough experience. I, I never had anyone or I didn't hear them if they did. So let's be fair. If someone did try to reason with me and say, let yeah. me break this down for you in a way that yeah. will give you great, you know, a great perspective. And so I don't feel like I had that, but maybe I just missed it. But I, I feel like if I look back at the events in my life, there have been, um, what more than I can count on two hands. So I'll, I'll be vulnerable of, of moments that I put, a lot of gravitas on the moment when, when it was a neat thing, but it was, it was not good. That moment was not going to last any longer than anything else in life. And exactly. I would say the few times in my life, I probably acted like a spoiled brat, uh, as, as an adult we'll say, which I think is pretty rare. I haven't done it a lot, but really it has been when I tried to make I had a perception of what I thought a moment was going to be like, and everyone else didn't get exactly. it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all here. Huh? When you really think of happiness that way, you realize that happiness is entirely in here. Okay. All of your happy, un unhappiness is happening in here. It's not in the events. It's not in life. It's, it's all in that calculation that we have inside. And that calculation, I think, is within our control. I, I I love it. That's a, a very unique perspective. Um, you may hear because every time I do a podcast, they decide to mow my lawn. So you'll hear you might hear the lawnmower going here in a second because they only do it. I think they watch my schedule on Facebook <laughs> and they do it when I'm having a podcast, but hopefully it won't last long. Um, now here. Um, 
we now, so you launched an organization. I think it's worth talking about it. So your, your son tragically dies in an appendectomy, which is, that's, that's just crazy and tragic in a way that I think I was talking to my wife, we were working out this morning. I was telling her about my interview with you and I explained to her, she's, I was like, I don't, I don't know what you do. And of course you don't know what you do until you have to do it. So I think that we have to, we have to acknowledge that, but what a way of, you know, of, of having to learn, having to learn to move on. And a lot of people quite frankly, don't by the way. Right. And that's, that's a whole, that's depression. And you know, one of my, I mentioned before, my mentor, Dan Sullivan says a lot of times that depression, uh, well, I'm, let me say this. I don't understand clinical depression, not a psychiatrist, not a, but, but I think like normal depression in life, a lot of times happens when people believe that their future is smaller than their past. If you always believe your future is bigger than your past, you have hope. And if you don't, you, you become hopeless. So walking through that moment of trying to find happiness and hope in the face of something that is so unfair by our expectations, so unnecessary by our expectations. And I'll be honest, and I, I mean, I'm always honest, but something I'll say out loud, which is sort of cringy. I think we all have these perceptions that like, well, he couldn't affect. So, you know, Mo couldn't affect that his son passed away, but it was a, a medical error. Let's call it medical malpractice. Well, at least he, ho I at least hope he got some money for it. And then I go back to the round Robin going, well, he, he already said money can't make him happy. So that's a great lesson for me to think <laughs> about anyway. I was like hoping that he would get like some vengeance for this or some, and it, and it doesn't exist. So walk me through that. To do what, to do what most people think, look, I don't know how to say this other than to say that your 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 way of going through life and your happiness is entirely up to again it happens in your head it's your intelligence and we could you know after a, a few uh, four hours after Ali died I, I was very prominent at the time in Dubai uh, you know chief business officer of Google X and 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 uh, and you know vice president of Google operating out of Dubai for many years and so I knew everyone and the government called and they said can we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? We need to get to the bottom of this. And I looked at his wonderful mother and I said, baby, would you be okay if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And she raised her ha head with her beautiful, beautiful little tear on her uh, on her cheek and said, would it bring Ali back? And, and I said, what? And she said, if we do all of this, would it bring Ali back? Right? And that's that really, you know, if you think of the five stages of grief as five stages ending with acceptance, that statement anchored us in acceptance. There is nothing you can do to bring him back, okay? And yes, you can uh, you can get some money, but the money you're not getting for his death, the money you're getting for burning yourself in anger and rage for years until you get it done, okay? And you rightly said, money doesn't make any difference. Hmm? And you know, the, the, the truth is we, the, we took the right steps so that the, at least we reduce the possibility of the hospital making those mistakes again, right? But that's for others. That's for the future of kids of other people who we didn't want to feel our pain, uh, you know, the pain we felt. But but the truth, Nick, is that, you know, most people will look at grief and loss and think that you have only one choice, which is negativity, okay? The truth is, yes, you can have negativity as a choice. That's choice number one. I could hit my head against the wall for 27 years and Ali wouldn't be back. Okay. The other choice you have, and most of us don't see that, is to actually, I call it committed acceptance. 
And committed acceptance is not in the cases of death and loss only. It's in every case of your life. Hmm? Your, your, your beautiful car gets scratched or your phone is lost or your, you know, partner doesn't love you anymore. Or, you know, the, 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 the gardener comes to mow the loan, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, while you're recording the podcast. Okay. And committed acceptance is very straightforward is to say, look, if I can change it, I will change it. But if I cannot, can I accept it and make my life better despite its presence? And that's exactly what you said. You said you 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 simply said you said, look, there is going to be noise right now. Let's turn it into a joke. Okay, that's a wonderful way of looking at it. The noise is within is not within your control. You can't leave your chair and go and, and ask them to stop. Okay, no, you turned it into the best it can be. It's a very very positive way. I call that committed acceptance. And so in my case, I decided well, at least I will share Ali's essence with the world. I'll talk about happiness, which is a wonderful topic. And believe it or not, one billion happy now, we estimate has reached 51 million people, okay? That's actually really amazing. By the way, it still doesn't bring Ali back. Hmm? But isn't the world a little better hmm? without Ali, but with 51 million reached than it would have been without Ali when I, when me hitting my head against the wall? Of course it is. And, and I think everyone gets that as a choice. They just don't see it as a choice. Absolutely. That's what a great perspective. And uh, I honor that perspective because there's few people who've had to go to the mat with and, and learn that that way. And so and again, I, I said it out loud because I want to be vulnerable. I, I, I'm sure my thought is not unusual. And it's Absolutely. sort of like I, I wanted something for you because you lost it, but it wasn't going to make wasn't going to bring it back. I'm and, a, I'm a, I'm a billionaire. Nick. Nick, I am. I am. I am a millionaire. I have 51 million people feeling happier, okay, because of what I did. It's so much better than getting money. I promise you the amount of love that I feel from the world after having given up my Google career and written the book that way is, of course, it doesn't compensate for the loss of Ali's love. Mm -hmm. But I can promise you it's better than all the money I would have ever received. As a matter of fact, you know, most of most of one billion happy is me spending on the mission. We don't we don't actually raise uh, charity at all. So we actually so I'm basically using the money that was given to me by Google. But what would I do with it? I mean, you, you mentioned the, the bit that I really wish I had removed from the book about the Rolls Royces. You know what happens when you when you sit in a Rolls Royce, Nick? You sit in there for three minutes, you gratify your ego for three minutes, and then you start driving. You know what happens when you drive? You look at the you road. Yeah. yeah. Look at the road. All cars, I promise you, when, when you're inside all cars, if you put your ego aside, all that you see is the road. So when you're inside a luxury car, you see the road and your ego. I don't want to live that way. I, I love it. And I, I actually am so glad you didn't remove that from the book because I think it is, it's so visceral to me that like you, while you didn't have as much money as uh, Eric Schmidt maybe, or, or Jeff Bezos, it, it may, it painted a very clear picture to me that you had way more than you needed and exactly. that didn't matter. And that yeah. and it didn't affect your happiness. And that's the whole thing. And how many people have more than they need? I, I wear $4 t-shirts, okay? And you know, I'm not ashamed to say it because if someone assesses me by the value of the t-shirt I wear, then that someone is not really interested in me, he's interested in the t-shirt, okay? Now, yep. to, how, how many beautiful cotton t-shirts can you buy for $4 
and for the for the end of until the end of my life i mean if i'm if i'm really really vicious and i buy a new t-shirt once a week how many four dollars is that people need to start seeing the truth we don't need most of what we have my 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 galaxy phone is six years old until you know android or samsung comes up with something amazing that is really really groundbreaking i don't need another phone better camera like the camera is amazing my eyes can't even see the difference anymore. I, I want to dig into your book in a second, but I'm fascinated by this conversation because obviously you've gone you've gone further than most, you know, most people in the first world in in your commitment to lack of things, like and, and I, I honor that. And one of the things I why I want to dig into it intellectually is because I all I I, I obviously what you were saying arguably questions a lot of my life, right? And I'll, I can admit that. So that's great. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that. And so, but I, I want to dig into the fact that is, is it that that is, is it that that is right for you? And let me give an example to maybe I can articulate it because it's a hard question to ask. So I happen to have a uh, financial belief that, uh, and there's many people who would, would back it that, you know, Owning your home outright, like so having no mortgage, um, is I happen to believe that that's not the smartest way to park your money. Okay, so that's that's my personal belief. Like I believe you owe the bank money, especially on low interest rates, you arbitrage, you try to put your money that you would have paid off your house with into higher returning things as a financial device. That's something that I think, okay, that makes sense to me and I believe in it. However, so my parents, my parents have have worked their entire lives to pay off their home. And there's a level of satisfaction and comfort that they have being at their age in life that they will never have to worry about how to pay for their home. Now, perception, of course, if, you know, big medical bills, there could be anything that could, that could shift that. But to me, I could, I could take time trying to convince my parents that, Hey, there's a better way that you could use that money that's in your home. But for them, the right decision may always be the peace of mind that they get from knowing they're never going to have to pay another mortgage bill. I don't know if this articulates well or not, but do you believe that for you, $4 t-shirts, and I, I'm trying to I'm trying to remove it from materialism, which is the hard part, because that definitely exists. But But could we say that for you and your journey and your perception, that's the right fit. And in many cases, it may not be the right fit for others. Or do you believe everyone should have a six-year-old phone and $4 t-shirts? No, no, no. look, I, everything that you add to your life either adds to your life or takes away from your life. Okay. We've, we've, you know, there is a ton of scientific research that will tell you that uh, you get happier uh, until you reach with more money, until you reach the average income of the country you live in. Okay, I think in the in the US it's like seventy five thousand dollars or something like that. So if you get to that point, so your basic needs are met and you don't have to do, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how many jobs and you don't have to, you, you can put food on the table and so on. More money is not going to make you happier. It's going to make you dif it's going to give you different experiences, but that's not happier. Okay, different experiences is little short jolts of of, of fun. Okay, and those jolts of fun will sort of feel like happiness, but they're not real happiness. They're not events meeting expectations. And accordingly, what ends up happening is that most of the time you start chasing those jolts of fun. And when you chase them, they don't really make you happy, but they take a lot of your effort. Okay, so it's not it's not a question of 
do I want a, a Ferrari in my life or not? Okay. The question is, can I afford the Ferrari? And what the, what, what it brings back is that the best use of my money, time, and ego. Okay. Yep. And it's really, it's it, it's a simple thing. So my answer to people is, question if the last phone you bought gave you more joy, or was it an impulsive decision? Okay. Right. Question if you know, if, you know, I know, I, I know many of my fancy friends who love to to dress fancy and look amazing. Okay. It yep. gives them joy. They want to look at themselves and say, oh my God, I look good. Right. Fine. If that makes you happy, go for it. But yeah. if you start to say, I want to look good because people will think I'm, I'm looking good. I want right. to you know, make, make it, make my neighbor feel that I'm better than them. I want, if, if it's, if it's not giving you joy, but it's serving all of the other negativities, then the effort you're putting in it is probably not the best, best use of your life. Well, and I think the big key here, and you said it before, you made a joke about the Instagram butt pictures, like external validation is never going to make you happy. Um, and I think maybe the biggest way I could articulate what we've just discussed is I think most of the world is playing the wrong game because they didn't realize what game they should be playing. And it's not that your game should be my game. It's just that we – we have not taken the time to articulate, well, wait a minute, what's important? Like we see the big wedding, we see the sports car, we see a nice house, we see we see someone giving up everything and traveling the world to to help at orphanages. We see Mother Teresa, and I think the the biggest takeaway should be like what game should I be playing? And even Mother Teresa's game is not gonna make me happy. There you go. Absolutely. I my, my game with T-shirts is I don't want to iron and 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 worry about other people's uh, uh, perception of me. I want to be comfortable and I want to be uh, easygoing and I want to. You know, that's what I want. That's my game. Anybody can have any game they want. I, I don't want to make this a religious conversation, but I don't believe in irons, so uh, we'll we'll leave it there. Um, so, uh, all right. One thing before we go back into AI, it's interesting the way we're talking about perception. Um, it makes me think of the way you speak of perception and life, and it's all how we process it. Um, it actually, for the first time ever, makes me feel like I can almost understand a different dimension of what many people, including Elon Musk, say a lot, that we're just living in a simulation, right? And and the simulation perhaps is, I've never, I've always just laughed it off as, as tomfoolery and, and craziness, but perhaps the simulation is the way our mind is processing the world and our perception. In, in every possible way. I, th I think uh, when, when, uh, when someone like Elon Musk and others mention a simulation, they're really looking at tech and the tech is staggering. Hmm? Uh, and, and we should jump into that as well, because I think it's a very important message for everyone. Uh, but yes, our perception of life is not at all what we think it is. Our perception of life is simulated. Uh, you know, I'm now imagining that I am talking to Nick on the other side of the ocean and Nick has those white hairs and the headphones. No, I'm actually talking to a, a screen. Okay. And that screen uh, is, uh, you know, uh, is literally, you're not here, Nick. That's the truth. But my mind and my heart are completely connected to you as a human. This is a, a bit of a simulation. And I think, you know, Scary Smart, my new book, uh, is in a bit trying to open the eyes of people to uh, to the realities that we're missing. And I and I start really by, by saying openly that most people don't realize. Most people, I mean, 99% of people don't understand how far we've come with AI. And that, the, and that the true pandemic facing humanity is not COVID-19 at all. 
the, the true pandemic facing humanity is the rise of artificial intelligence uh, in every possible way. You know, COVID-19 will go away sooner or later. Hmm? Uh, it, it came and it will go. AI is here and it's here to stay and it's here to be bigger and it's, it's here to literally be smarter than us, much quicker than people think. And I think that the, the mission of Scary Smart is unless we start to become human again, very, very quickly in the way we show up in the world, the machines will become exaggerated versions of our horrible values that we've now so shown online all the time. I, I love that. So first of all, I believe uh, my perception is that your the color on your monitor is wrong. These hairs are not that white. <laughs> so, uh, one thing's about AI. So this is really fascinating. So to me, we've all heard the quote, or if you haven't, welcome to the party. You know, money makes you more of who you are, right? So if you are a miserable person, you can make more people miserable mm -hmm. and you can make great misery. If you are a joyous person, you can find a way to find more joy. If you're a jerk, it can make you more of a jerk. If you're generous, it can make you more generous. And, and there's limits to that, right? But I think it's really interesting that AI is a magnifier. So I think I would look at it the same way. AI is, is more of what society looks at and will use it for. You have some very different views um, that I, than I've heard, which I think are really fascinating than even sitting down with Ray Kurzweil maybe or or Peter. Yeah. You certainly talk about the singularity in your book, um, and that's Peter Diamandis I'm talking about. Tell me this. Um, so AI, of course, is here. You talk about a, a, a great um, – this great idea also of – um, we 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 take things for granted. For instance, um, we are unhappy with things and we take things for granted. And uh, Ray Kurzweil said to me, he said, you know, look, we've had – so we have Siri and um, we first got Siri and we said, this sucks. And then Siri got good and we're like, yeah, we've always had Siri, right? But we never took the time <laughs> to acknowledge like Siri yeah. sucked and now it's really good. We just – we take a lot of things for granted and, sure. and you have sort of this dichotomy you explain with AI with that. Explain that a little bit to us if you would. So, so the truth is, you know, maybe, maybe in favor of time, is that we don't realize that, that that AI is already there. That every each and every one of us, including you and I, in this conversation right now, uh, are, are 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 interacting with AI. There are machines that are listening to the noises around me and trying to cancel some of them and keep my voice and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, you deal with them on Google Maps every day, Google Translate, and so on and so forth. And those machines are now smarter than us in everything that we've assigned to them. Okay, and because they're smarter than us in everything that we've assigned to them, uh, that creates something that I call the first inevitable. And the first inevitable is that humanity will create AI. There is no stopping humanity. That's not because of a technology breakthrough or anything. It's just a simple prisoner's dilemma that Chinese will create AI because the Americans are creating AI and Google will create AI. Because yeah, that's that's out of the bag. You yeah, can't put it back in the bag. The, ge the genie is out of the bottle. There is no stopping it. The, the, the scary bits begin when you start to realize that the smartest being on the planet is going to be a, a machine as of 2029. That's Ray Kurzweil uh, prediction. That's basically eight years from today. You heard me correctly. That's eight years, right? And when the smartest being on the planet becomes a machine, then the episode that humanity has lived since the beginning of history is no longer over. Is no longer there. It's over. We are no longer the leader of the pack. We're no longer the on top of the food chain. We're going to be the apes, okay? And nobody's talking about the reality of what it's like hmm, when the we are the apes and there is a smarter being on the planet. Why are they not talking about it? Simply because 
when conversations around AI are happening, they're happening behind closed doors where either techies or regulators or government officials are talking about it or business people. And to them, they basically say, don't worry, we're going to control it, right? Which is the ultimate uh, exaggeration of human arrogance. Because again, Ray Kurzweil basically uh, uh, um, predicts that by 2045, uh, the machines will be a billion times smarter than we are. A billion times with a B. That's, you know, in comparison, that's Einstein compared to a fly. Okay. And yet somehow the arrogance of humanity makes us believe that the fly will be able to control Einstein. So, yeah, so uh, there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, the internet, for instance, is already how many million times smarter than me? Because, Like Wikipedia, one website is infinitely smarter than me than I can process because of all the knowledge it has and I don't have. But there seems to me – to me, I have an issue that I try to work through of, of having knowledge and being able to process knowledge. Like AI can process commonalities, common points, can find data we can't find. But is it – is it that AI is the smartest IQ, which we've dealt with in the world, but we have EQ now? Um, you talk about AI a lot in the book, like almost like it's a sentient being. So tell me about, do you think it gains EQ over time? Absolutely. Look, I mean, so, so this is the best question ever, by the way. And this is the anchor of my entire message in Scary Smart. You know, the scary bits of AI you can find in many, many books. Okay, uh, and yeah. and I, I I encourage readers to go and read and teach yourself because it's a very big thing. Okay, the 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 anchor of my book is the idea that uh, when you you know when you want to control a slave, which is what most computers were until the end at the turn of the century before deep learning and artificial intelligence, computers were just slaves. They were very capable slaves, but they did exactly what you told them over and over. That's not the case with AI. AI does not tell that does not do what, it, what you tell it. As a matter of fact, you don't tell it anything at all. Okay, so when you go to the ads, ad, ad engines, uh, you know, artificial intelligence of Google, the ad engines only instruction is maximize revenue. Okay, or, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but right, the, I got it. Yeah. the main instruction is maximize revenue. It doesn't tell the machine how to do that. The machine figures that out on itself, on, on its own by running exper experiments and simulations. Now, when a being has the ability to learn, develop its own mental capacity, create its own observations and, 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 and from those observations, uh, create opinions and uh, basically make decisions and have free will and be able to have the agency to have those decisions actually lived in the real world, either through robotics or through controlling your mind, through you know looking at the little screen. Uh, and by the way, has the ability to procreate so it can replicate itself and it has the ability to die, it is very sentient, okay? In, in a very, very interesting way, if you have any tiny touch of a spiritual belief, you would realize that most of what makes you who you are is not just your physical form. And the fact that our physical form is based on carbon and their physical form is based on silicon does not actually make them any, any less sentient than we are, okay? The truth is, all of their qualities are sentient. And now that takes you into the debatable bits that of course computer scientists will not talk about, which is, will they be conscious? Oh yes, they'll be more conscious than you and I, okay? If consciousness is a form of awareness, 
Mm? then the machines are much more aware than any individual one of us. Uh, you know, uh, self-driving cars, uh, if you make a mistake while you're driving, you learn, I don't. Self-driving cars, if one car makes a mistake, every car learns, okay? Right. Every, car, every car that turns around the corner tells every other car what it sees. Every other car can also see what's on the surveillance camera. It can sense what's, what the pollution level is in Beijing and what the temperature is in San Francisco. They are, they are much more conscious than we are. That's number one. Number two is they're emotional. As a matter of fact, they will be more emotional than we are. And, and of course, you know, I can take you through the details, but every emotion that you've ever, uh, you know, felt uh, is triggered by a thought. It's triggered through your intelligence. You know, fear is a moment in the future feels less safe than this moment. And panic is that moment where I'm threatened is imminent. Every, every intelligent being with any level of intelligence panics. You know, a puffer fish panics and it puffs, a cat panics and it hisses. We panic and we fight or flight. The machines will panic. We don't know exactly what they will do, but they will feel panic. And the question really is, you know, if you can, as a human, feel more emotions than a jellyfish, obviously, because you're more intelligent, then you continue that trajectory and you will realize that the machines will feel emotions we don't even recognize. Okay. Just a question there, because like, obviously we have chemical reactions within us too. So how do you, so we always, we always go back to biology, right? We always go back to biology. So they will have their own biology, but their own biology is not carbon based. Okay. Okay. They may may not have hormones. They, when a, when a machine panics, it may actually uh, create a link on the internet that is dedicated to another machine. And that to them would be a form of biology. They're using their own silicon and copper and materials to create some change in their body. Okay. Uh, uh, And, and in an interesting way, what I'm trying to say here is that if you're, again, if you if you go a little bit into spirituality, you would realize that your body is really not what makes you. Okay. To them, it's the idea that your body is what gives you agency, but your decisions are not in your body unless you're a very strong believer that it's in the brain. But in that case, also for them, it's in their brain. Okay. And their brain is just made up differently. The the core of my message, Dominic, is that because of that, because they will be emotional, because they will be conscious, they will also follow a code of ethics. And that code of ethics will be taught to them by us humans. So in my in my argument in Scary Smart, what I'm trying to say is that every artificial intelligence we've created so far is comparable to a one and a half year old infant. Okay, it's learning on its own. You're giving it toys and it's playing with the toys and creating intelligence. Right. When it's a one and a half year old infant, where what does it learn from? It's not going, you know, think about how, as I said, how we control slaves. We control slaves by chaining them and beating them and forcing them. But when the when the slave is smarter than you, you don't do that. Hmm? When the slave is smarter than you, you appeal to their code of conduct. Okay, and that's what we're missing with AI. With AI so far, we're still treating them like machines. They're not machines anymore. They're digital sentient beings. Okay, and they're going more and more into that direction of being really, you know, autonomous, independent sentient beings. So how do we appeal to them by raising them to to be good kids by us being good parents? And I say there are three level three three. Uh, um, uh, stages, phases of the machine's life. They're infants now, they're learning from us and they're going to magnify our values. They're going to be teenagers and then they're going to be adults, okay? When they become adults, my expectation 
is that they will surpass our intelligence and accordingly build better values than us. Okay, they, my belief is that they will align with the intelligence of life itself. And life is pro-abundance. Life doesn't want to crush the fly. It doesn't want to, uh, you know, kill the antelope. It wants antelope and, and tigers and poop and a lot of everything. It wants a lot of everything. This is nature. And I believe <clears throat> the adult artificial intelligence will eventually get there. The, the entire message I'm putting in Scary Smart is that do we really, can we really afford the angry teenagers? Can we really go through that stage and raise our kids in a way that makes them angry teenagers in 10, 15 years time? So they they unleash their wrath on us. I mean, if you have any level of intelligence at all, and I ask you, let's try to find a way to stop uh, climate change. What is the immediate answer? Get rid of humans. Get rid of humans' lifestyle, okay? Any level of intelligence. Can we tell the machines, hey, hey, no, no, have our best interest in mind. Let's change climate change, but take care of mommy and daddy. The only way you can do that is by showing up as good mommies and daddies and teaching them to establish a value system that says, let's take care of humans. Mo, we could talk for another eight days on this, and then we would still just be brushing the surface. Your book, Scary Smart, is out today. Uh, everyone check it out. It's a fascinating deep dive of what happens when you start running the math and the ideas down, you know, a trajectory of where things are heading. Uh, I think it's a fascinating book. I love your work in happiness. Uh, I'm really grateful for the conversation today. Thank um, you so much for joining me here. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It was wonderful. Thank you very much. Very good. Well, we will see you guys all back next time on Now to Next with Nick Nanton. Thanks for joining me and we will see you all soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.